0: Shuffed Captain has been attacked by an herbivorous pacifist, an eater of leaves and roots, one who traditionally does not fight, and the ultimate insult, I left him alive.
1: Bridge to all debts, welcome back aboard Enterprise Incidents
2: with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris, and I'm feeling hungry for some meaty goodness. I don't want to deal with any vegetarians at all. Oh well, you know, just uh just to make sure you know what's inside the box. We are
1: very excited to be joined for our deep dive of, I think, one of the very best episodes of the animated series. Certainly the one that feels very, very much like it was uh ha- has a lot of inspiration and led to a lot of further inspiration. The Slaver Weapon. We are almost at the end of the first season of the animated series, which in more more cases than not. Has really proven to be quintessential Star Trek, and and so much better than its a uh, its a uh, reputation has uh, has has been over these decades. And we are so excited to welcome back aboard Enterprise incidents, award winning author Alan Dean Foster. Alan, welcome back aboard. It's so great to have you here.
3: Hey Scott, nice to be back
1: aboard. Well, first let's just start, Alan, with. What were your first thoughts when you first saw The Slaver Weapon as an animated episode of Star
3: Trek? Uh, I shouldn't be doing this. This is when I was (laughs) already already working on the Star Trek clubs. And I was very, very... This caused me more personal anguish than any of the other episodes I novelized. Because I wasn't just novelizing a TV script. I was novelizing a TV script by a writer whose work I read and admired greatly. And that made me feel nervous because I had no contact with Larry Niven, whose work we're talking about, obviously. And it's one thing to take uh, a screenplay or a teleplay from somebody else you've never met and quite another thing to take an actual uh, a story, not only a story from another writer, but a story from another writer that is a component of, of his, one of his universes. So it's, you know, that's fine. If you're like collaborating, like the Dynatopia books I read, I wrote, which are set in Jim Gurney's Dynatopia universe, Talked to Jim about it. We discussed what I was going to do, what he didn't want me to do with this. I was just presented with the script and it's like, go to it. I had no contact with Larry, but I know Larry was aware of it. You have to be aware of it. And mm-hmm. what finally happened was, well, Being a professional myself, I know that when you sign a contract, if there's something you don't want done, you have to include that in the contract. And if you don't include it in the contract and somebody wants to do something with what you've sold rights-wise, then you have to expect that that will be done, particularly with Hollywood, particularly with Hollywood. I mean, if you don't include in there that nobody can use your bathroom while the film is in production, uh, they're going to use it. Because that's just the way the system works. <laughs> so that caused me some trepidation. Oh, you have a lot of
2: experience with that. Was there something that you wasn't in that contract that you really wanted to be in
3: there? Well, it would have been nice if everything was spelled out. It would have been nice if everything was spelled out on all the contracts for all of the episodes. But it, because of the unique nature of the slaver weapon, it would have been nice if there was something in there, even if it was an appendix, which they often do with contracts that says in relation to this particular episode the author of the original story and the original universe gives permission to uh, Delray Del Books to hire someone to adapt the story. With the others, it didn't matter so much gotcha. because they were all written specifically, yep, before the show. But because of the situation I just detailed, I would have felt more comfortable if that had been in there. Regardless of the fact that it wasn't in there, uh, I had a job to do, and as a professional, I did it.
1: Well, I, I got to say, so so just a, a little bit of backstory here. What Alan did, as everyone I'm sure knows, if you're listening to Enterprise incidents at this stage of the game, you know that among many many other books that Alan has written over these years, he also wrote all ten Star Trek logbooks, which were not only uh, uh, adaptations of the animated series episodes, but uh, massive expansions upon those animated episodes giving giving so much more story more backstory and then going off and giving news story and that was certainly the case with the last four entries in the log book series so you can't see it right now but i'm holding in my hot little hands a first printing of star trek log 10 which is the last of the 10 log books that alan dean foster had written and this is the one that has the slaver weapon and as we get into our deep dive of the episode, uh, we're going to talk about the many ways in which Alan gave a before story, a side story, an after story, uh, so much that really makes Star Trek Log 10, I think, one of the very best in the Star Trek Log book series. So, um, you know, I'm excited to get into that with you, Alan. But of course, I have to start uh, by asking my uh, friend and partner, Steve Morris. What did you think during
2: your rewatch or maybe even your first watch of The Slaver Weapon? So it was. We- it, what's weird now is I'd never read any of the Kazin series from uh, Larry Niven. Uh, and I honestly, until you were talking, Alan, I didn't remember the name of that series. So I had, didn't know that this was really part of this whole other world because the big reaction I had was, wow, there's all sorts of interesting history about Star Trek and the world of Star Trek that I that is being brought up here that is fascinating and I've never seen anywhere else and isn't that interesting? So that was the first thing. It's like idea after idea after idea that were super interesting, a story that held pretty well together and a, a bunch of big... Oopses and faux pas and stuff that just should have been fixed or figured out a little bit more, which is pretty typical of the animated series. So, so I had a lot of different reactions to it, but in general, I, I I did I enjoyed the episode absolutely.
1: I I really enjoyed this one too. I mean, it felt like a a really deep, rich science fiction story. That going back to the original series, the first season of the original series was where you know, Roddenberry himself had sort of reached out to the science fiction community to have some of these great uh, sci-fi authors write episodes of the original series, uh, you know, like Richard Matheson and Robert Block and uh, and, and so many more. So, so The Slaver Weapon was production number 22011 of the animated series, which made it the 11th episode of the animated series to go into production. It aired on December 15th, 1973, which made it the 93rd episode of a Star Trek show to air, and as we discussed uh, with Alan, the writer of this episode is Larry Niven, who adapted the Slaver Weapon from his own short story called "The Soft Weapon." Now, this took place in the known known space world of several of his books and short stories, and the Soft Weapon. Was first published in the February 1967 issue of the If Science Fiction Magazine. Dorothy Fontana uh, was quoted as saying, "I thought bringing Larry in was a good move. Again, to have that connection to the science fiction community, he was the last. He was the one person who had an almost perfect story for us." And Larry Niven said. Uh, I was delighted to be asked. I knew science fiction writers had been invited into the live action series and that they helped shape the first season. I had trouble coming up with something and it was Dorothy Fontana who came up with the notion of using my short story, the soft weapon, it seemed obvious enough. Now, it's uh, what's really interesting is that in the Slaver Weapon animated series episode, there is no Captain Kirk and there is no mention of the Enterprise and Niven said, I was allowed to do what I wanted, uh, in which Captain Kirk did not appear. I felt excitement to be allowed to do what I wanted with this story. Uh, this was the second Star Trek episode to not feature Captain Kirk with Mr. Spock. Of course, the first episode was The Cage, but that didn't air until after The Slaver Weapon did. McCoy and Scotty are also not present for this episode, and this is the only animated series episode to not feature the enterprise at all but but alan your your uh your book uh really of course includes scotty and mccoy and and captain kirk and there's a whole other story that deals you know when we when we open the uh uh the slaver weapon you know spock and sulu and uhura are already in possession of one one box, you know, and we find out how they got there. And, you know, we find out in the end what happens after Sulu and Uhura and uh, and, and Spock get back to the Enterprise or on their mission. So Alan, like uh, when it came to taking the Slaver Weapon animated series episode and, you know, going off in and, you know, creating a whole sort of mythology around it, where did you start? What was the, the what was the
3: starting point for you to to add to the story? Well, the starting point was the, uh, the universe that Larry had created. And it was obvious that I couldn't just work with Star Trek. I had to fill in, and again, this was something that caused me some issues, some of the background for the Kazin, who are a wonderful group of aliens. Uh, and one of the first things that occurred to me was, well, as you find out later in the story, I'm sure you'll want to talk about it, the Kazin are a feline species. And the first thing that hit me was thanks to the animated Star Trek, we have a feline Federation species that is also feline. And there has to be some way, the character's name is Imres. There has to be some way to work Imres into the main storyline here uh, where she can relate to the Kazin better than any of the human or Vulcan characters in Star Trek. So that was the key point that that I started with there. I wasn't sure how I was going to do it, but I knew that that was going to be a key to the expansion of the story.
1: Well, okay, so so hold that thought. And Steve, uh, what what was your t- take on on the Kazin uh, uh, characters? You know, the feline characters. I just thought they were a great alien race, uh, and would have been curious to see how that would have looked on the on the live
2: action series. What what I really like about them is that there's a tendency, I think, to think about humans and different human cultures and then apply those human cultures to create the star trek culture so when they first created the romulans they're like well this is really ancient rome and so we have centurions and we have you know and there are places where you go okay well this is the vikings or this is you know and and we take those things and what the kazin are which i think is so much more interesting is they took an evolutionary path they said okay these are evolved from felines, and therefore they're carnivores. And what does this say about their social groups? And how would they evolve differently? And I think that is a really, really interesting take. I actually have a question though, uh, for both Scott, you, and Alan. And maybe I, my guess is maybe we don't know the answer to this. But in today's world, the one of the biggest things you have, your assets as a creator, is your quote unquote IP, your intellectual property and nobody wants to give away their intellectual property they always want to hold on to it so it can become a big thing and it can be have toys made and have movies made and have animated shows made and comic books and everything and so i'm really curious do we know what Larry Niven's intention was in letting Star Trek have this or what his deal was? Or was there like, hey, maybe there's gonna be, you know, film animation's gonna do an animated series of the Kazin or we're gonna develop them elsewhere? Or is it just here, take this, you could do whatever you want with it?
1: Alan, do you uh, have any background to that?
3: Um, I don't know what Larry's thoughts were because I never talked to Larry about it, but it cuts two ways. The first way is one we already alluded to a little bit. Which is that you signed a contract that allows somebody else to use your IP, in this case in the Star Trek episode. Yeah. The backside of that is, and I I've, I've had to deal with this through my whole career, usually to my benefit, is that people who may have seen the television series will know nothing about your original work, may have never heard of you, whether me or Larry in this case, and because they've seen something on television or in the movies will then be inspired to look up your other work. I would bet money, uh, I can't say how much, that there are a lot of people, a lot of young people particularly, because this was an animated quote-unquote kid show, um, who saw this episode of The Slaver Weapon, were intrigued by the Kazin, and suddenly went and looked up Larry Niven's other books, and they have gone from The Slaver Weapon right. to The Soft Weapon to Ring World, to the integral trees, to who knows who else. This is one of the things that's happened to me in my career because of all the movie novelizations that I've done. People who would never pick up a science fiction novel by anybody would see something like Alien or The Last Starfighter and see my name and perhaps be uh, intrigued enough to pick up one of my original books. So it does cut both ways. It's not just simply a question of, well, you sold the rights and that's gone and dead and you get nothing else out of it except the quick check for doing the, the script there's a lot more to it that's advantageous to the author than just that
1: that's a really really interesting perspective and and you know just steve like like uh uh larry himself had said that he was he had trouble coming up with his own you know unique story and it was dorothy fontana who said well what about what about the soft weapon that could be that that would be perfect or just you know kind of I mean, you know, paraphrasing, but she said, just put in our characters into the soft weapon and work from there. And that is how uh, how, how that came about. And even David Gerald had said, uh, Dorothy Fontana knew Larry. So when it was time for the animated Star Trek, and she was a big fan of his work and said, gee, I'd love to get a Larry Niven story. Could we adapt one of your stories, Larry? And that's when the deal was made. So there you go.
2: Gotcha. Yep. So on December 6th, Gerald Ford was sworn in as the vice president of the United States. Obviously, that's going to have a huge effect on the future of American politics. On December 7th, women were officially allowed for the very first time to enlist in the Coast Guard. This is the slow, you know, dissolving of all these barriers we had. Uh, This one is crazy and scary, which is that on the same day, December 7th, convicted child murderer Lester Eubanks escaped from the Ohio Penitentiary after being allowed a temporary unsupervised furlough to go Christmas shopping. And what's scary about this is as of the end of 2022, he is still on the FBI's 15 Most Wanted Fugitives list. No kidding, wow. As far as we know, this guy is still out there. (laughs) I mean, my guess is he's a pretty old guy at this point, but uh, yep, still out there. On December 11th, the American Revolution Bicentennial Administration was created to coordinate the Bicentennial celebrations. And I know since all three of us were around for the Bicentennial it seemed to go on for like five years. There were so many (laughs) bicentennial things that went on in 1976. On December 13th, the F-16 was introduced. On December 14th, France's finance minister agrees to accept collections of paintings and other art from the estate of Pablo Picasso to pay for the massive amount of inheritance tax that was incurred when he had died a few months earlier. So his heirs just said, look, we don't have any money. Can you just take all this art? But none of it was actually Picasso's art. It was art he had collected along the way. They didn't give away any of his. Um, and on December fifteenth, and I think this is just a huge deal, the American Psychiatric Association voted to remove homosexuality from its list of mental illnesses. Up till that point, being gay was a mental illness, and it, wow. from this that point forward, it was no longer considered abnormal psychology. Well, one more thing to add to the what was going on around
1: this time. So, so. This episode aired on December 15th, 1973. The previous week, it was a rerun. And the week before that, we had the Amber Grease element. So I never got a chance to bring up something, a seminal date in December of 1973 that had a very, very pivotal impact on my life. And that was on December 3rd, 19th, sorry, December 5th, 1973, when the album Band on the Run by Paul McCartney and Wings was released. That album remains my single favorite album of all time, even over anything by the Beatles, because it is sentimental to me. Because it was the very first album that I, you know, bought with my allowance, but it was the very first album I ever bought because I love the song Jet and I love the song Band on the Run. And I got the album and the album cover looks very Sgt. Pepper. And to this day, it is still my favorite album of all time. So I have to throw that in there because, you know, my two loves really are Star Trek and The Beatles, and sometimes they
3: overlap. People wonder where story ideas come from. So here's your movie. You have that notorious child killer escapes. He's still out there. The man who let him out on the furlough in the first place, this becomes his life work is to chase this guy down, find him and get him back in jail, and the escaped murderer, sorry, Scott, his favorite song is Band on the Run, except he's changed it to Man on the Run, and he goes around whistling it all the time. And so we will hear that. This is referencing back to Fritz Lang's M. We will hear that occasionally throughout the film, but you're not going to catch this guy until, obviously, the very end of the film. There's a film for somebody to make. The whole episode is sufficiently obscure that today's audience is not going to understand it. Then you say, this is a true story based on a true story. And there you have a movie.
1: Wow.
2: I I love it, Alan. And what's so great is now, because now I'm picturing, it's like, oh, and you cast, you know, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino in the two leads who are about the right age for people that have chased each other for 50 years. Um, Yeah, I, I love it. I'm sold. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but I will say that I am officially trademarking carpet Riding that for Alan Dean Foster and Enterprise Incidents right now. So if anyone makes it, we will sue you. There you go. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, we start with a very long pause looking at the stars. These are always these weird timing things in the episode where they're just sort of, I guess we're a little short. Let's just stretch this out a little bit. <laughs> and then we hear. The first officer's log, because we are on the shuttlecraft *Copernicus* with Spock, Sulu, and Lieutenant Uhura, and that's our entire *Star Trek* cast for the whole episode. That's
1: that, and that's what makes this really, really super unique. And the fact that it stands on its own, even without Kirk and McCoy and Scotty. And of course, obviously Chekhov. But so, so Alan, what I've been doing all along with these animated series episodes is I've been taking the star dates and I've been plugging them into the live action episode star dates to kind of like place where this particular adventure took place in the, in the arc of the original live action series. So the first officer's star date log is 4187.3 which kind of makes this a flashback episode for the animated series, placing the action between the live action episodes, Bread and Circuses, and The Doomsday Machine. And the other thing to note is that the Shuttlecraft Copernicus was designed not by our friend Bob Klein, who was the storyboard artist, but none other than Walter Matt Jeffries, who, of course, designed the original Enterprise and I got to ask a question to you, Steve. During this episode that features Spock in command of a shuttlecraft mission, did you, by any chance,
2: think of uh, another episode that kind of had that similar premise? Your Honor, I object. As this question is clearly leading the witness, uh, <laughs> 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 you I think you set that up pretty well. Yes, of course, I thought about the Galileo Seven, and
1: and also how uh, you know Spock uh, is. Uh, kind of makes a grave error in this episode like he did in the Galileo 7.
2: Oh, I guess that's true, huh? Although I think as a leader, he's way better here than he is in the Galileo 7. For sure, um, yeah. Well, one of the things we talked about throughout uh, Star Trek, obviously, is the importance of great science fiction ideas. And I think there's just so many great science fiction ideas thrown out right at the beginning of this. And it's 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 kind of a criticism of an episode. It is a criticism of the episode, like uh, several episodes we've seen before, which is th- there there was more they could have done with each of these ideas if they had introduced fewer of them. There's just a lot thrown out and a bunch of it we never really deal with. But I love the idea of the stasis box, that this is a box that time stops inside and it could be for a billion years that what is inside has is absolutely frozen. That is a super cool sci-fi idea.
1: Well, it's funny you should say that, Steve, because Alan... You did exactly what Steve is alluding to is you, you know, the episode, this episode starts, they're already in possession of one stasis box. So Alan, how did you come to write the portion of the story to which Spock and Uhura and Sulu came to be in possession of that first stasis box in the first place?
3: You couldn't start and get two thirds of a novel again, with any of the stories by just novelizing the screenplay. And the best thing you can do when you expand is take the good ideas that are in there and expand upon them. And so it, it seemed perfectly natural for them to find a different box to start with and to work with that. And that allowed me to uh, develop the whole idea of the stasis box and uh, you know what could be in it and what other things they held in the history of them. And this is how you expand upon a story. Also, as, as you mentioned, Steve, it's a great science fiction idea. You tend to get better science fictional ideas when science fiction writers are the ones doing the writing. Now, that's, that's yeah. not really even an oblique knock against some of the people who wrote for the show who aren't really science fiction writers. But you do tend to see this throughout the industry, both in television and in film. Uh, writers who have no experience growing up reading science fiction and especially writing science fiction, they're not the ones who are going to come up with the ideas, that with the new ideas or the original ideas, they're the ones who are going to take the old ideas and bring them forward and try to develop them. So that's why it was such a pleasure working on this story. I knew that the science fictional ideas would not only be valid, but would be consistent throughout the story, because it was a science fiction writer who wrote the story. And I didn't. that was one thing I did not have to worry about, when I was adapting the episode, I knew everything would fit together. So what we find out is
2: that these were part of the slaver civilization, which had apparently conquered the entire galaxy a billion years ago. There was a huge war and then all intelligent life was wiped out and had to start over.
4: Are the stasis boxes the only source of information we have?
0: The slavers and all their subjects were exterminated in the war that followed. Intelligent life had to evolve all over again.
1: The other thing that I was wondering, you know, all these years, and not that I had seen the slaver weapon too many times, but when I did watch it, I went, wow, where's the Enterprise? And reading Star Trek Log 10, we find out why Spock and Uhura and Sulu went off in the Copernicus, because the Enterprise couldn't be in two places at once.
3: It's another way to expand upon the story. Just jumping in and and showing the Copernicus mission wouldn't be sufficient for a reader. It's fine with television because you just get hit with something right away and you accept it and you take the hook at the beginning of the episode, whatever the show is, and you go with it. But in a book you can't do that. I, I knew I couldn't do that because people would ask that same question. Well, this is really interesting. Where's everybody else and what are they doing? And of course that gives me an opportunity to expand further and to write something that has nothing to do with the slaver weapon story. And I had to do something like that, uh, not only to satisfy readers, but to help expand the story to sufficient length. And also, I think it's kind of fun, and readers are kind of, they're dealing with two separate stories at the same time. And that's always a lot of fun too. As long as you keep everything consistent, keep it together, that was was something I had to do. It wasn't even necessarily something I wanted to do, it was something I had to do. By the way, just as a little aside, uh, when, I was com- when I was writing the treatment for the first Star Trek movie, Kirk was on Earth. Kirk never shows up on the Enterprise in the original treatment. It's everybody else suddenly has to deal with the whole menace of V'ger. And we cut back and forth. Uh, most of it takes place on the Enterprise, but there are plenty of shots where you cut back and forth. What you have is a captain who can't get to his ship. And that was something I was really interested in exploring Uh Uh, The studio wasn't, obviously, but the idea that Kirk is (laughs) frantic because this is the greatest, at least at that point, the greatest emergency that Earth has ever faced, and Kirk can't get to his ship. So that was almost like a little side story. Maybe it would have worked cinematically, maybe it wouldn't, but it was an idea I wanted to explore. Now we come to the slaver weapon. Kirk is not here with the Copernicus, so you kind of... uh, you know, writers' minds can work alike sometimes.
1: Well, to answer uh, what the question that uh, some people might be thinking who have not yet read uh, Star Trek Log 10, and I think it's a great read. Uh, I, I really, really enjoyed it. So Captain Kirk is on a mission to establish a diplomatic relations with the Briamasites who are choosing between the Federation and the Klingons and can't decide who to establish an alliance with. And the Brahmacites are very, very powerful and intelligent beings. And if they sided with the Klingons, that would be bad. If they sided with the Federation, that would be good. So Kirk is called into his uh, diplomatic duties, like we have seen in Errand of Mercy and A Taste of Armageddon, to establish diplomatic relationships with these
2: beings. And that is the story that bookends the the slaver Weapon* couple of interesting things here. One is I'm looking at the thing that Spock is using to record the log, and I'm like, man, that looks like exactly like a little mini cassette player. And <laughs> I went, man, is this another place that Star Trek predicted technology? Because my assumption was mini cassette players didn't come out until like the late 70s or early 80s. But no, it was 1967, so it, they weren't inventing technology. The other thing is there's a line where we hear that the stasis box was found on Kazindi and that they, they those archaeologists found them. And we took them, and I went, man, that it used to be just accepted that the more civilized people would go and take any artifacts found by the uh, in, on planets that we didn't uh, trust so much, which is something maybe we'd ha- handle differently today. And the other cool science fiction idea that pops up is that
0: the stasis box starts glowing.
4: Why is it glowing like that?
0: Most peculiar. This indicates there is another stasis box circling that's
1: all a lot of great science fiction uh, a, as you say and and i feel like watching the animated series episode of the slaver weapon you know spock is is very prominent in this episode and of course he's yeah. uh, he's the top guy uh, or the top uh, uh federation officer that we see but this is i would say i would refer to this
2: as a spock episode and a great companion to the galileo seven totally and, and the other thing is now we get, and this is where I went, man, there's all sorts of S- S- Federation history that I didn't know.
0: Their effect on science has been incalculable. In one was found a flying belt, which was the key to the artificial gravity field used by starships. Another box contained a disruptor bomb with the pin pulled. As a result, all stasis boxes are now under the jurisdiction of Starfleet. And only certain key specialists handle them. That's all really interesting stuff. Yep, world building. But we never return
2: to it because this, I mean, there's...
3: I had to be careful when I was writing all the novelization. Now, when you throw stuff like that out, um, even though at the time at least uh, the, the animated series wasn't considered Star Trek canon, people didn't worry about canon so much at that point. But I have to be careful about throwing things out like that because then if it does become canon... Somebody has to decide, is this little piece of information canon? Is it not? I ran into this with doing The Force Awakens. Just to deviate for a minute, there were certain things I did with the Millennium Falcon. They said, no, you have to take that out. And I knew why. And it's it's now that these things are long-term franchises, the studios that control the properties are much more careful. I don't want to say, well, I say picky. They're much pickier about stuff like that, about what they'll let you as the writer invent on the assumption that it might stick around and in 20 years cause a problem for episode number 483.
2: Wow. (laughs) And so we head down to this ice planet and we get out and we think we've located the other box and they're about to look for it when then these aliens, the Kisinti appear. And the way that it's framed, at first they look just like giants and they open fire and shoot everyone. Uh, so this is not looking all that good for the crew of the Copernicus.
1: So Uhura first makes a comment when they get down to this planet that she doesn't like ice bound worlds. Steve, do you, do you have any idea why she might be saying that? Uh, Oh, uh, I don't know why. Well, I'm just thinking that she just has a bad memory of when the enterprise almost spiraled down into an ice bound world that was in its final death throes and uh, the crew just really lost their minds because of a disease that was in The Naked Time. I don't know, dude.
3: I feel like you're reaching a
2: little bit on that one, but <laughs> I, like, I like the effort.
3: Well, the reason I wrote that and threw that in there because you do get a chance to do stuff like that is, and it may sound silly, but it's what I did, was Uhura has East African ancestry. And all of her people down through time mm. don't really like cold weather. Now she may have had ancestors who sure. came from St you know St. Petersburg, Russia, I don't know, but my assumption was because of her African ancestry that down through her family, people who generally didn't like cold weather. Oh, that, okay.
1: uh, sure. that's a much better story <laughs> than the one I was reaching for. As for the design of the Kazinti, so storyboard artist Bob Klein, who joined us for our deep dive of the time trap, which was a great conversation? He said, I wanted it to look cool and not particularly humanoid in its stature, which is why the Kazinti hunch over and its hunchback. I didn't want it to look comical either. I wanted it to be imposing. As for the pink uniforms of the Kazinti, well, we have talked elsewhere about how. You know, back when we were doing uh, the Tribbles episode, Steve, how the Tribbles were pink, and it was because uh, the director, Hal Sutherland, was colorblind. But Bob Klein sort of set the record straight that the colorist for the animated series, his name was Irv Kaplan, he just liked the color pink. Look, pink is a lovely color. I like pink. <laughs> I'm not ashamed of it.
3: <laughs> I don't remember exactly everything we did in the previous episode, but did we talk about my relationship with Bob Klein? No, we didn't. Please, let's hear it. All right. Star Trek Log 5 has kind of a water monster on the front. Yep. I recognize that style. The reason I recognize that style is because Bob Klein and I were Really, really good friends from junior high school all the way up into high school and would occasionally go to a science fiction film together. And Bob wanted to become wow. an artist. His ultimate goal was to work for Disney. And mine was not at that time to become a I didn't know what I wanted to become, but I knew I loved science fiction. So Bob Klein and Ma and I go back uh, at least till 1960, I don't know, two to ancient times and used to hang out a lot together. We're in the same class at U.S. Grant High School in Van Nuys in California. Bob did a lot of the artwork for the annual uh, because he could, there's always somebody who can draw and Bob was it in our class. And then we kind of went our separate ways after we graduated. But when, as soon as I saw that, I thought, gee, that looks like, that reminds me of Bob Klein's artwork. And then I got a hold of him subsequently and we chatted a bit through letters, but we to this day haven't managed to to meet in person each time. So it's funny how it's a very small group of people who like to do these sorts of things. And Bob ended up doing what he wanted to do. Uh, but we go back to junior high school, Bob and I, and what was the name of that episode again, wow. which I, where you interviewed him? It's called the time trap.
2: The time trap. That's right. Um, It's so, it's funny. First of all, it's a super cool story. And second of all, it's interesting that, I mean, you and Bob have been, Two of my favorite guests, and I know Scott's too. Yeah, we've had it's just we've had such a great time talking to you with you both, and it's funny that you know each other for so long.
1: Yeah, and that image on the cover of uh, Star Trek: Log Five, uh, the Water Monster from the amber grease element. Um, I just I remember getting that in the bookstore, going like, "Wow, like what? A, like that's such a great cover." I know you like it too, Alan.
3: Well, it caught my eye immediately, and then the brain started working, thinking. That looks like somebody's style. I know whose style is that. And I didn't even know Bob was working on the show at that time. Uh, it's just I picked up on certain visual clues there and later found out he was. And as I said, we exchanged some letters and stuff. And he was just as surprised to hear from me uh, as I was to hear from him. And I haven't heard from him in a very, right. very long time. And, uh, but, yeah, it's great that uh, our interests converged in different ways.
2: Yeah, sure, sure. (laughs) So we're in this cave, and the first thing Spock does, and this is what you were referring to earlier, is he apologizes.
0: He says, I must take full responsibility for this event. Instead of being warned by the highly unlikely coincidence of a second stasis box, I allowed its possible value to influence my judgment. That's exactly what he wouldn't have done on the
2: beginning of the Galileo 7. That's very true. And we hear a little bit more about the Kazinti that the the treaty's not supposed to let them have weapons. They've had multiple wars with them. They're on something, which is another cool little sci-fi idea of a police web, which is keeping them motionless. And then in come the Kazinti, And this is where I go, like, look, there's an idea that doesn't really get followed up. And one of them is that there is this kind of worn down looking guy who's a telepath. And I think the whole telepathy thing, it ends up kind of going nowhere in the story. Yeah, yeah I agree. You know, so it's like why introduce it in the first place. Um, but what is uh, is interesting is as we're talking
0: about it, we say, he Spock says, "Mr. Sulu, he's not likely to deal with me or Lieutenant Uhura. She and I are inferior beings to them. But the Kazindi are meat eaters." And so here's the split: is they're
2: not going to respect Spock because he's a vegetarian and a pacifist. They're not going to respect Uhura because in their in their species, women are not intelligent. And but they will respect Sulu because he is an omnivore. He says
0: this weird line, which is if you sense him reading your mind, think of eating a raw vegetable.
1: <laughs> I know that's so wild. Also, that establishing that Spock is a, a vegetarian, you know, we we learn that or actually will learn that because you know, this actually takes place before all our yesterdays. When uh, you know, he says he can't eat animal flesh, but he does anyway because he's uh, reverted back to his ancestors. But there's a lot about this episode that uh, is uh, – there's definitely a lot of world building, which I think is great, especially in the time constraint that they had to do this in. But there is also a lot of carryover from the canon of the original series into the animated series. Uh, specifically with Spock being a vegetarian. And as we will later learn, yeah, you know, Sulu really knows
0: his weapons. We'll get to that. Um, and, and I do like this moment. Lieutenant Uhura, in the presence of the Kazinti, do not say anything, do not do anything startling. Try to look harmless.
2: And this is when he reminds her that they
0: think of females as dumb animals. In an emergency, the Kazinti may forget a human female is an intelligent creature. And her response is, thanks.
4: Thanks a lot.
0: (laughs) Lieutenant, I value your intelligence, but we may be able to seize an opportunity to escape. If the Kazindi believe you have none. Yes,
4: sir.
1: So, so in the, in Alan's uh, book, Spock says, well, I know you have intelligence. Mr. Sulu knows you have intelligence. In fact, everyone on the enterprise respects your intelligence. Like, it was, it was a great way to just kind of like to say, hey, come on, this is, this is the Kazinti, this is not anyone that you work with on a daily basis.
3: I always, when writing about the Enterprise characters, try to emphasize the importance of characters besides Spock and Kirk. Whenever possible, uh, characters like Uhura, who sits at communications and says, hailing frequencies open, Captain, and that's half the time all of her dialogue. Uh, and Sulu's background, you know, as a martial artist and his whole history. These are things that I love to get into, and I know fans enjoy them as much as I do, that you just don't have time to do during an hour-long TV show or a half-hour cartoon show. And when the opportunity arises to throw something like that into the book, I always try to do it. Well, there's
1: another uh, sort of side story that's going on here in conjunction with the the Kazinti. Uh, Alan, that you expanded on, and that is uh, Lieutenant Moress, who was second uh, officer in communications after Uhura. You know, She is of feline descent. Uh, she's a Cation, as are two other uh, Enterprise officers. So while all this stuff is going on with the Kazinti, the Cation feline characters aboard the Enterprise are kind of uh, loosened their, their minds a little bit. What was the uh, your thoughts behind that part of the, your storyline, Alan?
3: As anybody who knows my work knows, I love doing alien characters in alien societies. And the opportunity to do so didn't really exist in the film Star Trek, but it did in the animated Star Trek. And if it had been up to me, if I could have worked it into the story properly, I would have put him rest on the Com- Copernicus too, which could have led to all kinds of interesting Uh, developments. Oh, yeah, it wasn't there. It wasn't there in Larry's story. So I I didn't feel that I could get away with doing that. So I did it in the other part of the story, the other part of the book.
2: Here's what I find frustrating is, is I think this idea that Lieutenant Uhura, you're going to play a little bit dumber because they're going to underestimate your intelligence, and then you're going to do a thing. That is such a great plant. And they don't really do it. And so it just goes to like, oh, you've said that would have been the most interesting thing in the episode if Uhura had outsmarted them in some way by playing dumb, but that doesn't happen, you know.
4: Uh,
1: that's a great point, Steve. Like,
2: you know, first look, watching this during the
1: rewatch, I thought, ah, oh, man, that's like like to to have a point of view that that oh, with women, you know, female human females are not intelligent. What a what a big uh, sort of you know. Part of the expression, but a big F you that would have been if Uhura was the one who outsmarted them all in the end. But anyway, you're right.
3: <laughs> there's there's a great short story by Robert Checkley. I can't remember the exact title, but basically, humans land on a world where the females outnumber the, the males something like 500 to one, and so the males have to constantly kill females, otherwise the balance gets so so askew. The, the population won't maintain itself. So in the humans' land, one of the first things the aliens do as they're trying to communicate and understand each other is out of a gesture of politeness, kill one of the human female crew members because that's what they do. Mm. The humans are just like them. It's an exercise in communication and lack of communication. Uh, but this this is a trope that you were talking about. It's, the mass murderer in Stephen King's The Green Mile plays dumb. And then does something. Uh, it, it's a. You're right, Steve. It's something that should have been explored further. Would have made a great plot point. But sometimes things just get missed. Yeah. So they, they come
2: in and they behave exactly the way Spock predicted, which is they're only addressing Sulu. And as they're talking to him, uh, we hear some more information. And one of them is that they've had four wars with the humans. One of them 200 years ago, which doesn't seem to line up really with Star Trek timing that well, <laughs> but they've lost every time. And what we find out is basically they are an official, unofficial kind of spy group. And if they find a great weapon, then they are part of the Kazinti. And, and otherwise, you know, the, they will deny any knowledge of their of their activities. You know, so they're <laughs> like a Mission Impossible crew looking for a weapon. They fire a beam at the box and there's intense music and it opens up. And they find out like, a green creature uh, and maybe a picture of a slaver and some fresh meat.
4: Over a billion years in that box and it looks fresh.
2: And then they pull out this green thing that might be a weapon and they say,
4: Look at it, human. This weapon may well mean the end of mankind.
2: And that's the end of Act One.
1: Steve, let me ask you, what do you think the slaver weapon represents in 1973 or 1967 when Larry
2: Niven wrote his short story, The Soft Weapon? Um, to me, it's like another doomsday machine. It's another, yeah. yeah, it is, it is a way to tip the balance in uh, in the cold war or the balance of power in the world. That's what it seems like to me. What
1: about you, Al? What does the slaver weapon uh, represent to you?
3: Yeah. Uh, Steve's got it right. It's a doomsday machine, a doomsday device. And then it, if you accept it as that, it leads to all the usual questions. Do we use this? Do we not use this? Can we use this a little bit? Uh, all of those <laughs> questions uh, attend to super weapons, if they indeed turn out to be super weapons. And the other thing is uh, can it be controlled? Because once you start using a, you know something right. like this, uh, does it, is it going to backfire on us? Again, there's another Sheckley story. I'm sorry. To, no, I'm proud to keep bringing up Sheckley called the last weapon where a guy is on Mars and he's looking for essentially the same thing uh, that's in the box. And what he does is he opens it up and there's two eyes and a mouth and the mouth just says protoplasm, goes around eating everything in sight. And the guy who's looking for it has access to all kinds of secret Martian weapons. Nothing works. And eventually he gets eaten too. And then the two eyes and the mouth wander off looking for something else to eat. And we know it's headed to earth and that's the end of everything. And I thought Checkley's idea was just brilliant. Yeah. It's just two eyes and a mouth, but it can't be stopped. So it, the super weapon can always backfire on you. So you have to th- think about that too. So onward with the story.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, the other thing is that that up to this point, by the end of Act One, Steve, we still have not seen the slaver weapon used to its full potential because Spock keeps bringing up like, oh, well, you know, this isn't, this doesn't compare to anything the Federation has. And he's going to be proven wrong in a
2: in a short period of time. So we come back in Act 2 and we've moved out on the surface. We're going to test out that weapon on the humans. <laughs> and uh, I do like this police net thing because they just throw it down. And then that's like a portable jail cell. I think that's a really cool little device. And we hear that the meat was protoplasmic and poisonous, which again is sort of like, well, why include it? Like it just is sort of we introduce it and then we don't do anything with it. Right. Um, then they decide to fire the weapon at the humans and this whole time i'm like man these guys are really dumb i mean (laughs) like they're let's just we got this thing from a billion years old we got no idea what it is let's just start pushing buttons on it so they try to fire it nothing happens then they touch the toggle and it changes shape into something else and to try to fire it it doesn't work and it changes shape into something else um, and I think a the staging is confusing. So the eye line and where people are looking, I couldn't figure out who had the gun. I don't know if you had that experience. It's like, wait, who's where like who are these people?
1: Yeah, um, yeah, like they're they're not they don't seem to be looking where they should be looking. I had that yeah. same problem too.
2: it's all it's all just because it's sloppy and it's rushed. and then the the weapon changes into the wrong thing and then changes back into something else like they they just keep making these errors which I totally get it. They have no budget. They have a small staff. They're rushing these things through production, but these are all the things that should be caught. You know, they're, they are mistakes that are not correct. Uh, and they keep trying and nothing's working. The telepath is continuing to read Sulu's mind, but nothing's affected them. They're making all sorts of speculation on what the device might be.
4: It may be a communications device or a sonic stunner designed to affect members of a race now dead. And I'm just like,
2: You guys are so dumb. Like we have, you literally have no evidence of anything of what this thing could be. And then finally, it turns into something that shoots a laser beam near Sulu.
4: I give you credit, human. You are not afraid to die.
1: Sounds very Klingon.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
4: And then the last one, as
2: they're it's turning into other things, is it turns into like a like a handheld rocket, and he goes, the captain goes flying around slams into uhura knocking her out of the police web and she runs and as she is running they fire a phaser at her and knock her out and this is the second time uhura gets hit by a phaser in this episode yeah she takes a lot of abuse
1: yeah it's a little redundant in that way i i noticed that too and the uh the 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 kazinti captain it's a chuffed captain is how he's referred And the uh, spaceship that they're on is a stolen police vessel called the Privateer Traitor's Claw. Um, The the thing that also struck me about this at this point is that the Kazinti, they're trying to figure out how to use the weapon, which is something that is clearly advanced way beyond the Kazinti, way beyond the Federation. They don't know what they're doing, and they're fooling around with the weapon, not knowing what the consequences could really be. And that thing is just in the wrong hands. And, you know, who's to say that the Federation is even the right hands?
3: Like you said, Steve, it's for an advanced space going race capable of interstellar travel. These Kazinti are not doing really smart things. I mean, even if you have something that you suspect might be a weapon, you take one guy, I guess the, the Kazinti equivalent of a red shirt, and you put him over on the other side of the mountain. And let him try to make it work. It's like the guy hammering on the end of, of an artillery shell. You know, what does this thing do? Or you have a grenade on the ground and nobody knows what it does. So you pick it up and start fiddling with it. And eventually you find out what it does. Um, that's, that's just even most basically you don't do it. What you do is you pick it up and you try to put it someplace safe. And then you take it back and let a bunch of specialists examine it. But that makes for much longer than a 20-minute episode. Yeah, sure does. A lot of the illogic, I think, stems from the fact that they just don't have time to do sensible stuff with it.
2: I, I think they don't have time on two levels because there's not time in the twenty-two episode to do what they need to do, and there's not time in the production schedule to figure out better ways to do it. A, a really good show, they they don't have these these problems. You know, that's
1: well. well that's- also, in defense of Filmmation, you know, they were. They were an animation factory. They were doing many different yep. animated shows and you have these animators and writers and obviously people like Hal Sutherland who are jumping around from from shows that have absolutely nothing to do with each other. And, you know, it's easy to like be, okay, which, what am I doing now? Like, which show am I doing now? Oh, it's Star Trek. Oh, I thought we were doing the Brady kids, you know? So- I mean I agree that you know watching it now it's easy to pick up the flaws and and it's certainly noticeable and you know you just got to shrug your shoulders and but at the same time I think that under under the circumstances with the time and with the budget that they had I think ultimately what what prevailed
2: is worthy. I would say there are two things that really make the animated series stand out. One of them is that we get to see stuff that we couldn't see like swimming underwater and more aliens and just people growing and shrinking and all, stuff that we just couldn't do. That's one thing. Right. Mm-hmm. The more important thing to me is we get to spend time with characters that we didn't spend time with before. And and because Shatner is insane. listen, where are my lines? I mean, he, there's no Shatner here. And yeah. that gives us so much more Sulu and Uhura than we ever get, including this moment of nice try.
4: I'm slowing down. I used to run the hundred in record time.
3: Yeah, yeah that's fun to get time like this with these characters. And I love, as I mentioned before, being able to include stuff like that for those reasons. And, uh, you, we should be grateful to, for what we have, uh, based on the time constraints and the budget constraints and everything you said, Scott, and the fact that, you know, the green object doesn't turn into Scooby-Doo by accident. Uh, so
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. <laughs> The, the guys are continu- continuing to play with this device. It turns into some round shape. And this is just a classic comic moment. It's like, I don't even know how to aim this thing. And they push the button and the lights go off behind them. They don't realize they just killed all their power, which kills the web that has kept the Enterprise crew trapped. And they're going to go escape. And Spock gives them s- some orders.
0: When I give the word, make for the shuttle. Remember to zigzag. Ready? Ready? go
2: and then in a total surprise to me that i love spock doesn't run with them he goes and drop kicks the cinti captain uh and it's just an awesome action move i think
1: yeah i would love to see that as a live action move actually yeah
2: and we're running away and we see sulu you know dive out of the way and then again who gets hit by phaser she might get hit by two phaser shots in this moment she does she does So now we're up to the third and fourth stun on Lieutenant Uhura. (laughs) Poor Lieutenant Uhura. (laughs) Sulu is hiding, ready to ambush what he thinks is an alien coming, but it's Mr. Spock who has managed to get the slaver weapon. And Sulu's worried that the Kazinti are going to call for help. And Spock
0: says, They cannot, or rather, will not. Why? Because I kicked Shaft Captain. Consider Shuffed Captain has been attacked by an herbivorous pacifist, an eater of leaves and roots, one who traditionally does not fight, and the ultimate insult: I left him alive.
1: Wow, I mean, see, that's so fascinating to me that this, this, these little bits of world building with the Kesenti that uh, is, you know, provided by Spock and Spock and Uhura and Sulu shine equally in this episode. It's. It's a it's a joy to see a completely different perspective among the the main crew of the Enterprise and
3: that moment is pure Star Trek because they solved a, solved a problem without shooting somebody. They solved it through Spock solved it because he understood Kazinti culture, not because he had to pull out a gun and shoot the Kazinti captain. I love that's to me is pure Star Trek. Absolutely it is.
2: And then, and I love this too, is Sulu is the guy who comes up with the interesting idea, which is that he thinks that this weapon must have belonged to a spy.
0: I acknowledge your expertise in the field of weapons, Mr. Sulu, but I do not see how you can determine probable ownership.
2: I think Sulu's logic is a little bit thin. I wish there was a little more here or a little bit better piece of evidence he uses, but I do like the logic.
0: Well, here, look at it. All these settings, but as a weapon... Only the laser is effective. The others aren't necessary for the line soldier's one purpose, to destroy the enemy.
1: And Sulu knows his weapons because certainly we know that he's into fencing because of, again, the naked time. But also, he was really impressed with that gun that he found under a rock in Mm Shoreleave. So Sulu knows his weapons. (laughs) And Spock is impressed. I love that Spock is impressed
2: with it then there's a huge shake and the ship flies up.
4: This is the traitor's claw calling Mr. Sulu. We have the female prisoner. Will you bargain or must we take harsh action? It will not be pleasant for her.
2: And that is the end of act two. Um, We come back in act three and they're gonna trade her for the slaver weapon.
4: What about Mr. Spock? He must surrender. I will offer him single combat.
2: Then he says, look, I haven't I haven't gotten any medical care. I got broken ribs. I haven't bandaged myself. Spock could conceivably kill me. And I am so bummed out by the direction that it goes here. Because Spock says...
0: Indie ribs have some vertical bracing. But I kicked him over one heart. I compute the odds of my defeating shuffed captain in combat at 16 to 1 against... Offer refused.
2: And I, as a Star Trek fan and a Spock fan, went, Oh, come on! I wanted this thing on combat! That's, yeah. I wanted to see Spock go fight this guy.
4: <laughs> yeah. They think very little of you. Wrong. They don't think much of you.
1: I love that comeback. Way to go,
2: Uhura. She sets the Chuff captain straight. And while I think that... Spock and Sulu are certainly smarter than the Kazinti in terms of how they handle this weapon. They're pretty much just pushing buttons and sliding things around based on assumptions with little, very little information too, including trying to, you know, believing there must be, well, if it's a spy device, there's gotta be a self-destruct mechanism. And they decide to fire it again. And it looks like, you know, they sh- set off an atomic bomb Yeah, how totally. powerful this weapon is.
0: No world in the Federation has produced anything so powerful. Almost beyond theoretical limits. Total conversion of matter to energy at a distance. If the Kazinti had that, the whole galaxy would be their dinner table.
2: Because one thing we didn't mention, the Kazinti are cannibals. They want to eat humans.
3: Right, that's true. Of course, that's not true. I mean, when you start talking about phasers and photon torpedoes, to say that nobody has anything like this is not necessarily true. But it moves the story the story forward.
2: And this explosion is so big that it ends up knocking them back to unconscious. The weapon turns back to a ball. We fade out and they are back on this police web. They're captured again. The slaver weapon is in this round sort of watermelon kind of shape and then this thing starts to beep.
4: How long has it been since you were turned off? I do not know when I am off. I have no sense of passing time
1: so here you have a weapon that is far more powerful than they anticipated and it's also uh sentient it's intelligent it uh, converses with them like uh how does how does that scope a, that a weapon could be intelligent like that sort of also bring this slaver weapon to the level of a doomsday machine alan
3: well, it's uh, it's an interesting concept that I think needs to be explored a lot further because if you can build something that advanced as a weapon, there's no reason why you couldn't give it intelligence as well. John Carpenter's first film, Dark Star, does this. A ship carries a load of intelligent mm. bombs, which leads to all kinds oh, of problems. that's true. And there where the bomb uh, suddenly gets philosophical, starts arguing whether it should go off or not. The, the wonderful stuff. And... Uh, I love the idea personally. I'm wholly in favor of intelligent weapons because I think they probably do a better job of it than humans, who don't act in an intelligent, responsible manner, very much. And if we had, uh, if we had a series of bombs, a series of weapons, say, I'm digressing a bit here in Eastern Europe. I don't think the Ukrainian bombs would be fighting with the Russian bombs, but it I Here, I'm writing a whole other story, but uh, it makes perfect <laughs> sense to me. But if you can create something. One step below a doomsday weapon, uh, you ought to give it the ability to think too. I think that's a real good failsafe. I mean, it's a bomb; it's a weapon to start with. So, what's the harm about? What? How much worse is it going to do if you give it intelligence?
2: Good point, Alan. You said earlier, you know, this is how stories are created, and you came up with a story on the spot about chasing down a criminal. You just made another one because. All of the stories about weapons and intelligence have always been – all the ones I can think of are doomsday stories where it's the Terminator or whatever, that the weapons take over and they're dangerous and they're the bad guy. And you, you're, the thing you just said was like, what if they're the good guy? What if the weapons are the ones who are going to stop the war and the humans are the ones who are going to create the war? That's a good – sign. that's the beginning of an interesting science fiction idea. Yes, know? it is. Very much. So – What's interesting, I like this sequence a lot, which is they're asking this little device questions, trying to find out what it is and what it does. And it won't answer unless they give it the correct code. And this is where they are smart. Well, where were the stars when you last remember anything? Well, what can you tell me about this? What can you tell me about that? And it continues to say,
4: I may not tell you of it unless you know certain code words.
2: And then they ask it.
4: One of the settings on this weapon was a total conversion beam. We saw it. Tell us how to find it.
2: And then for some reason, even though it's been saying no, 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 now it says, oh, well, just, you know, twist this until you reach my low position. And they do it. And it turns into
0: a totally new weapon. That was not the total conversion beam setting.
2: And they head outside and they get ready to fire again. And inside, Uhura says,
4: we can't let them have that weapon
0: they are not about to get it lieutenant
4: why not
2: it's so funny this this episode really alternates between missed lots of missed opportunities for me and moments that are really cool and this logical description of what spock says is about to happen i think is really cool which is essentially what he does is he replays what we just saw with the kazinti asking questions and it giving answers from the perspective of the device
0: now you are awakened by aliens you never saw before they do not know any of the military passwords. They ask you so many questions; it is obvious they know little about you. Your owner is nowhere about. What would you think? I'd
4: think I'd been captured by the enemy.
1: It's great, definitely excellent. Yes, absolutely. The the whenever you had a situation in the original series where, in this case, Spock is and Uhura and Sulu are dealing with everything, but whenever you had a situation like where Kirk is trying to reason like let's say nomad you know nomad is almost like a doomsday machine unto himself uh because but it's an added level because he's intelligent and you know thinks he's perfect of course he's wrong and we know what happened with that but uh this feels even though this is this is an adaptation of a story from larry niven this feels like like you pointed out a couple times already alan this feels like like pure star trek
3: Dorothy knew what she was doing. And
2: Sulu says,
0: And when they ask you how to find your most powerful weapon setting, what would you give them?
2: And we go outside, which is a nice bit of storytelling in the cut, fires the weapon, and of course it blows them all up, leaving a huge crater. Uh, We're back inside. It's funny that there's one Kazinti left who I think is the telepath who's kind of, you know, wasn't out there with them. And again, we just never go back to that telepathy thing or the telepath in any way.
0: No sign of the weapon, of course. It would have looked nice in some museum. It never would have reached the museum, Lieutenant. There was too much power in that one setting. If not the Kazinti, the Klingons or some other species would have tried to possess it.
2: So we're better off with it destroyed, I think is what they're saying.
3: Yep. Mm-hmm. Kind
0: of an Oppenheimer movie.
2: Uh, by the way, I am really curious about that movie.
3: Oh, so me too. am I. <laughs> yeah.
2: Christopher Nolan is not always the most. His movies don't always focus so much on making sense; they focus a lot on an experience. And I'm really be curious if he if he can bring it all in to make a really tight drama about that story. Yep. I,
0: strange how the past sometimes breaks through into the present. That ancient war could have sparked the new war between man and Kazinti.
2: And then. Uhura brings up this thing about the legends of weapons haunted by their dead owners. An ancient superstition.
4: (laughs) At this rate, they'll never get over those old superstitions.
2: And then it just kind of ends with a whimper. Like there's sort of like weird musical moment and some stars and some weird music and like a hesitation almost. And then, okay, we're in the final music in the episode.
1: Yeah, yeah. This, This is another example that that feels like an abrupt ending. You know, we've seen this a few times in episodes of the animated series, but again, it is what it is. And we've talked many times about the limitations, but so in Alan's book for Star Trek Lock 10, the actual story of the slaver weapon that we see in the animated series doesn't really begin until page 55. And then that portion of the episode ends on page 143, but then the book goes on to page 250. So if you were reading the book, Steve, and you, you know got to this point, you'd be like, oh, well, that's okay. I still got more than 100 pages to go. And what's great about the book is that when the Copernicus is reunited with the Enterprise at Starbase 23 to continue to establish those diplomatic relationships with the uh, uh, Brianna sites, Something very unusual happens during an ion storm uh, and the transporter that uh, kind of flips the identities of, uh, of Kirk and uh, Spock and Sulu and Uhura and Alan. Uh, I know you know what I'm talking about. I was wondering, you know, how much fun did you have with sort of having Uhura actually in Kirk's body and Sulu was in Spock's body? And Spock was in Uhura's body. Anyway, uh, this sounds like it uh, it must have been a lot of fun to write. And it would have been a hell of a thing to see in a live action episode.
3: Well, whenever I'm writing, I see it in my mind. I'm a visual writer. And I try to do stuff like, I try to do different things that maybe they haven't done. It's a way of exploring character. I mean, it's not an original idea. Thorne Smith came up with it uh, almost 100 years ago. But it's a way of exploring character in a different way, and it's a way of showing familiar characters in a different light without making them radically different, changing their permanent personalities. And also it's something that the reader doesn't expect. You always want to try to do things that the reader doesn't expect while maintaining the internal logic. I know I've hammered this point over and over again multiple times, but the most important thing to me in, in writing particularly in science fiction, is to maintain the internal logic. You know anything you want, as long as it fits with what's gone before, with what's going to come after. That's why, I don't know if I mentioned this before, at the end of the Star Trek movie, when I was doing the novelization of the first reboot, and uh, Scotty's talking about an unfortunate incident with the Admiral's pet beagle. I don't know if you remember that. He's Mm -hmm. working on this portable transporter idea. Okay. What I wanted to do in the film, because I was still writing the book, the film was still in production, was after the credits, have a scene in the transporter room and the transporter's activated. And here comes a very disoriented looking beagle. I thought it would have been a great, a great cap to the end of the film and people, but they just won't let you do certain things. And as a writer, it drives me crazy sometimes, but it made, it was part of the story, maintain the internal logic. So what you're referencing at the end of log 10 is that same idea, and in books, I'm allowed to do more things than you would be allowed to do in a film. And when you have the opportunity to do it, you go ahead and do it. So I haven't read that
2: book, but that it sounds like a fun story, and I'm kind of intrigued. Yeah, yeah,
1: Steve. It's uh, you know I was thinking how you know some of the uh, animated episodes where. You have the enterprise crew getting smaller, and then you have the enterprise crew getting younger in the counterclock incident, which is which is a real fun episode. I can't wait to talk about. Uh, but just sort of having their their the personality swap the bodies, you know. Uh the prospect of seeing Nichelle Nichols be Spock uh would have been real, real fun in a live-action episode. But but Alan, you know, Star Trek Log 10 was the last. Of the log books in which you which you uh, novelized the animated episodes. So, what was it like for you when you were finished with that? Finally, because this was published in January of nineteen seventy eight, and uh, you know the motion picture was underway in production.
3: Well, uh, in one way, I was sorry to see it go because I did get to do a lot of things within the context of the books that I would like to have seen in Star Trek—big things and little things. And I wasn't going to have the opportunity to do that anymore in the books. On the other hand, it was a great sense of relief because doing the first six books was fairly easy because I put three episodes per book and doing one, one episode per book essentially required me to write mostly an original novel. And because of the timeline that I was given by Del Rey Books, it was and I was working on other things at the same time, it was very difficult to do. And I feel a real responsibility wow. with anything I write uh, to the reader. And there's, if there's one thing I won't do, it's turn in a slapdash job just to pick up a check, despite what people think of novelizations who usually have nothing to do with novelizations. Uh, I, just, I just won't do that. And it was becoming difficult. That was why, fortunately, I had no idea that the last four books were going to be based on or, or centered around one episode per book. I had the idea that I would save the last four episodes to do one big book with all four episodes and tie them together somehow. And in in Mm -hmm. lieu of that, I saved what I thought were the best four episodes for last. Thank goodness I did that because then when I had to do one episode per book, I had what I thought were at least my four favorite episodes for last. Larry's story, Dave Gerald's story, and so on. So that worked out well. But uh, what I really wanted to do, uh, as far as Star Trek goes, was write original Star Trek, which I got to do, in a sense, in the last mm-hmm. four books, which I really got to do with the Peter Pan records, which were all completely original Star Trek stories, and which I got to do because the studio was involved to a limited extent with the film. And meanwhile, I have my own universes I write, and that's that's been my career with uh, my career with Star Trek when I'm doing a novelization, I put all of myself into it. I view it as a collaboration with the original writer. I don't look on it as hack work. And I hope that when people pick up something like a Star Trek log, they're getting an actual book and not something where the screen directions have just been taken out and the dialogue and the action directions left in.
1: Well, I, I agree with you completely when it comes to the last four books being among the very best of the episodes of the animated series, especially, I mean, I already mentioned this, but the counterclock incident is the last episode of the series, you know, and that's the episode where we meet Robert April, who was the first captain before Pike uh, and and obviously before Kirk. And you know, that expansion is also uh, you, you you make those stories, you know, Bem and counterclock incident and certainly slaver weapon, you know, you make them your own uh, because of just how much you how how original most of it, is outside of just you know the uh, the, the tell place that you are adapting, but uh, you know we we can't thank you enough for joining us again on Enterprise Incidents, Alan. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. And, and again, you know, I, I, Alan, I mean, I got these books when I was in my single digits, <laughs> and they are so so special to me. You know, like because before the motion picture, before Star Wars, the original Star Trek was all I had. And reading the logbooks and reading like the photo novels and getting the top's trading cards, that was my childhood. Though all that stuff, uh, you know, maybe you can't see it on the on the Zoom, but this is in freaking mint condition. <laughs> you know, it is in absolutely perfect condition. No writing. The spine is perfect. Uh, I have treated this like gold all my life because. It's my rosebud. You know, the original Star Trek, the logbooks, the photo novels, the tops trading cards, uh, you know, the ba- the Bannon books too are are they are the rosebud of my life.
3: Have you seen the hardcover editions of the Star Trek logs? Oh, I, yes, I did. Of course. <laughs> that's that's a whole story unto itself, but um even I don't have all of those, but that's that's okay. Uh I'm glad they brought <laughs> you some I'm glad they brought you so much pleasure. I'm glad they brought other people so much pleasure. My favorite line: People say, "Why do you write? Why do you still write?" And my answer is the same, oddly enough, as George Lucas's when people asked him about Star Wars. My my favorite book of fiction is Arthur Conan Doyle's *The Lost World*, the original *Lost World*, and the introduction to that Lost. has a little line, little thing in there it says, "I've done my simple plan. If I give one hour of joy." To the boy who's half a man, or the man who's half a boy. Gender issues aside, that's the way I feel about everything I write. Well, Steve,
1: after this conversation well, and after rewatching, sorry, sorry, sorry. Can I jump in just quickly?
2: Yeah. Something. So, so my second ever professional writing job uh, was I was hired to make a thing that never ended up happening. The writer on Conan the Barbarian at Marvel was quote unquote retiring, uh, Roy Thomas, and they said, "Hey, do you want to write an epic Conan adventure?" that takes Conan to uh, the lost world. And so that's when I read that book, which is a fantastic book. And so I wrote this whole thing where old man Conan ends up fighting dinosaurs and then he unretired and my scripts were quietly put into a drawer never to ever come out. Um, that was my second, that was part of my very ill-fated co- career as a comic book writer.
3: Crom approves anyway.
2: I think Crom approved of me uh, getting uh, destroyed and hurt Because that's what makes you stronger in life. So um, my final thoughts on the slaver weapon is like a lot of these episodes, which is, oh, cool idea. Oh, great moment. Oh, I really love, I really love, I love Shatner and I love Jim Kirk, but having an episode with just these characters, I thought it was great. They have great moments. And there were so many like little mistakes and little things that didn't get followed up on or Little moments that didn't happen, like Spock fighting the captain or Hora saving the day by doing something smart that I just was like, oh, but I did enjoy it. I did find it to be a fun episode. And there are a lot of other ideas I would love to see used in more Star Trek. That's my thoughts.
1: Uh, I agree. I, I think that just like so much, some of the more recent episodes that we've done on Enterprise Incident, Steve, this is another one that exceeded my memory of it. Uh, you know, I remember the, the, the line like creatures, the, I forgot, I forgot they were called the Kazinti, but I pro- forgot how provocative this episode actually is. And, uh, and also how ambitious it is, you know, the world building with the Kazinti and the, 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 the slaver weapon itself, um, and the uniqueness of no Kirk, no enterprise. I think it's a smart, that's exciting, packs a lot into 24 minutes and that's with the opening and closing credits. And the slaver weapon, Alan, you saved it for last because you thought it was one of the best, and and I agree with you, it is. And I think that your your novel Star Trek Log Ten is also one of your very best. Although I do like the counterclock incident too; that's a fun one.
2: Thank you, Alan. What are your what is your final thoughts on uh, the slaver weapon on the episode? I would say first,
3: if you want to write a science fiction show, the best thing you can do is hire a science fiction writer. And I don't just say that you know as, as a casual thing. It's because people who write science fiction for a long time understand how it works. It's not the same thing as writing a detective novel. It's not the same thing as writing a Western novel. And all of those little things that go to make up a good science fiction story, while you have both mentioned the little details of world building, particularly the fact that people act according to common sense and knowledge, all of those things show up in a good science fiction story. And I think that's particularly evident in The Slaver Weapon because it was written by a a science fiction writer.
2: So that is what we think of The Slaver Weapon. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You could visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for Enterprise Incidents on Twitter. We're Enter Incidents. On Instagram, we're Enterprise Incidents. And we'd love you to subscribe to the show if you haven't done it already. Apple Podcasts, if you're an Apple-type person. Of course, we're on Google Play and Spotify and YouTube if you're a different kind of person. On YouTube, we love your comments. On Apple Podcasts, we would love your reviews. They really, really do help the show. And if you want to support the show, you can do it by just clicking on the link in the show notes. You can support us for as little as $0.99 a month, as much as $9.99 a month. It really helps us keep the show going. In fact, without it, we can't keep the show going. So those subscriptions really, really do matter. If you want to reach me, you can do it on SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris 1 on Instagram. And on my other podcast, right at this moment, we have, in fact, I believe just yesterday, released the third part of our epic exploration of the social network with very, very special guest Scott Mance, to t- discuss what I know is one of his all-time favorite movies. These are great conversations.
1: Yes, they are. The, the app, first of all, if you love movies, you should be listening to the Cinephiles podcast with my friends John Roca and Steve Morris. And yes, we we are we are getting through a multi-part deep dive of one of the best movies of the 21st century certainly the citizen kane of the 21st century and i don't just mean that because it's great it really is the citizen kane of the 21st century the social network and the cinephiles is the very very best movie show so make sure you go over to apple podcasts and all the other uh, podcast platforms and dive into the cinephiles many 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 episodes many 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 years of great movies with john and steve and of course make sure you head over to apple Podcasts and youtube and spotify google podcasts and check out enterprise incidents we have covered each and every episode of the original series we have just had the most amazing guests including 100 year old ralph sinetsky who joined us for all six of the episodes he directed here on the animated series, we have been joined once before by Alan Dean Foster for One of Our Planets is Missing, and we also had Bob Klein on our show for The Time Trap. Uh, we have been very, very great uh, or very honored to have so many great guests on Enterprise Incidents, and make sure you leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. And And uh, next time on Enterprise Incidents, we are, we are getting to the end of season one of uh, the animated series we have two more episodes to go in season one and then we have only six episodes to go in season two it was a short season but there's some good stuff there but up next on enterprise incidents is the eye of the beholder that's next on enterprise incidents until then keep going boldly